Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. Today, we're looking at the future of e-government. How easy is it for citizens around the world to interact with their governments online? And how much has the pandemic sped up the shift towards doing things digitally? We believe that the COVID-19 crisis is likely to significantly accelerate the shift to digital and fundamentally shake up the digital government landscape. Which countries are leading the way and which ones are behind the curve? There are a lot of factors here in Brazil that set it on a path of improvement. In many ways, Japan is a laggard in terms of e-government. And what are the cultural challenges that must be overcome when reinventing government? Do we want a public sector that never takes risks, that is very bureaucratic, very safe, but frankly, from a citizen's point of view, doesn't do anything kind of innovative? Filling in forms, standing in line, getting tangled up in red tape. Nobody enjoys dealing with government departments, whether it's to pay taxes, renew a driving licence or register a birth, marriage or death. And around the world, the pandemic has introduced new challenges, as queuing up in person has been replaced by the need to spend hours waiting on the phone or having to navigate the confusing virtual corridors of government websites. The pandemic has, however, shown the value of e-government when it's done well. In many countries, it's an easy way to report a Covid test result, book a vaccine appointment or apply for financial support. And being able to interact with government departments online without having to leave your home can be quicker, safer and more convenient. But some countries are more advanced than others when it comes to providing online access to government services. I've been in the middle of renewing my correspondent visa, which you have to do every year. Sarah Maslin is The Economist's Brazil correspondent based in Sao Paulo. That entails proving that I am who I am, that I work for The Economist, and that I live in the place that I say that I live in. During the process of showing that I still live in the apartment that I lived in last year when I filed this document, I had to go in person to a notary's office and have my signature on my apartment contract recognized again by presenting my ID and this is the kind of thing that you have to do on a regular basis here in Brazil. In-person notary offices, many different series of documents and a kind of constant renewal process for, you know, everyday procedures. And what is the government doing about this? I realise the government of Brazil has rather a lot going on at the moment, but is there a formal effort to try and digitise more services and move in that direction? There is. And I don't want to make it sound like the government isn't trying. The government is trying. And especially this government, which came in a couple years ago with a free market, get rid of bureaucracy bent. There's actually an office within the economy ministry that's called this bureaucratization, which is the kind of de-bureaucratization office. And they've been working on these uh, digital government procedures. They've 
been, as you said, somewhat distracted during the pandemic, but they've also made some progress. One thing that was really important was a program to support informal workers and poor people in, in Brazil with around $110 a month for six months last year during the worst part of the pandemic. And in order to get this money to people, many of whom had never had a bank account and didn't have bank accounts, the government had to enter many of them into this government system. And I think now that that pool of information, I think of around 70 million Brazilians, will serve to help get other kinds of services to them. The United Nations has a department dedicated to monitoring the development of e-government around the world. It publishes a regular survey that ranks countries by the quality and accessibility of their online government services. This report is the only report in the world that assesses all 193 member states. My name is Vincenzo Aquaro and I work for the Secretariat of the United Nations under the Department of Economic and Social Affairs as a chief of digital government branch in the public institutions and digital government divisions. I know it's a very long title. <laughs> well, perhaps the, um, the e-government survey is probably a good place to start. Obviously, the 2020 edition is the most recent, which I believe has essentially figures up to 2019, doesn't it? So it's before the pandemic. Just give me the big picture. Who's doing well? Who's doing badly, roughly? In 2020, we could observe that almost all the countries move up, so moved from uh, a lower group to another group. So it means that the overall trend is, is really positive. And this works for, uh, and it's applied for all the, the region. Uh, let's concentrate on the, the countries that move from one group to another. For Americans, for example, we have Argentina, Chile, Brazil and Costa Rica that move from the high to the very high uh, AGDI group. For Asia, we have uh, Saudi Arabia, China. They did an incredible uh, uh, movement up. Kuwait, Malaysia, Oman, Turkey, Thailand also did a great, uh, a great uh, um, improvement. For Europe, we had the Czech Republic, also a big jump. Bulgaria, Slovakia, Latvia, Croatia, Hungary, Romania. And then we should also be fair to highlight the countries that moved from the really very low to the middle group. Still, these countries need a lot of, have a lot of work to do, but it's important to highlight uh, Sudan, Mali, Mauritania, Commodus, Djibouti, Guinea, and, uh, uh, and Yemen for Asia. So the general trend is that everybody's moving up, which is very positive, obviously. But I think the surprising thing that people who are, are not familiar with the rankings, they would expect that the big, rich, high-tech countries would be on the top of the rankings everywhere. And it's not as simple as that, is it? Is it easier to make this sort of transformation if you're a small country? What we notice is that there are a group of countries that work together and then have the opportunity to learn each other and also to, to create uh, synergies, but also a sort of uh, competition among them. I can give an example, Arabic regions. The Arabic region is moving very quickly in the ranking, but as a whole. So you, we have uh, Saudi Arabia, we have UAE, we have Bahrain, 
we have many countries from that region that all together they are moving. Another good example in Asia. So as you know, top leadings, we are talking about, of course, Korea, Singapore. But what China is doing is unbelievable in the region because it's really moving so fast on new technologies. And it's also leverage and working with other countries in the region. Last but not least, Oceania. Because, you know, Oceania has two top leaders, New Zealand and Australia, but also have several uh, small uh, highlands and developed states. These also can take advantage from uh, uh, these uh, uh, big neighbors that really work together with them. So the main reason is because of this capacity to do networking and to work across borders and not only at national level. It turns out that some small countries like Denmark and Estonia are considered the leaders in e-government, outclassing larger, richer economies. And one large, rich, high-tech country in particular has quite a bit of catching up to do. In many ways, Japan is a laggard in terms of e-government. It might even be fair to say that there isn't really much e-government here at all. Noah Snyder is The Economist's Tokyo bureau chief. He's been covering the efforts of Suga Yoshihide, the Japanese prime minister, to tackle the problem by establishing a new digital agency charged with modernising government services. It's a problem that generations or several uh, iterations of the Japanese government have been trying to deal with. In fact, there was an e-government strategy announced first back at the turn of the century, at the turn of the millennium. They were hoping to put all of their administrative procedures online by 2003, yet as of 2019, just 7.5% of the uh, national government's various administrative procedures um, could be completed online. So it's a problem people are aware of, but they haven't made much progress on. Now, this is the country that gave the world the Walkman, the PlayStation, the Toyota Prius. So why is a high-tech nation so far behind when it comes to e-government? One big reason is bureaucratic factionalism. Japanese ministries and Japanese governments are uh, agencies are famously stovepiped or, or, or divided from one another. So in terms of IT infrastructure, that tends to mean that you know every ministry, every local government has their own IT infrastructure. They've built these custom systems, perhaps work at a local level, but don't uh, speak to each other. That's one big, big piece of the problem. Another piece is an unwillingness to change uh, long-standing systems, long-held traditions in terms of how things are done, in particular the use of the, the hanko or the personal seal in place of uh, signatures has meant that most administrative procedures and documents have to be printed out, stamped and, and handed in in person. So these are things that that people have lived with for a long time and have gotten used to and until recently, really until COVID-19 hit, didn't feel any particular urgency to change. Now, when you've spoken to people like the minister in charge of all of this, do you get a sense that they are looking at other countries as examples of how to do this well? And if so, are there particular countries that they, they consider that you know Japan could learn from? 
Absolutely. Uh, the example that uh, both Hirai-san and, and many others here in Japan often cite is Taiwan and the popular digital minister there, uh, Audrey Tang, who really uh, impressed a lot of people in Japan with how they use technology to uh, help Taiwan get through the COVID-19 pandemic. It was, of course, a stark contrast to Japan's digital stumbles during the pandemic. So you do get the sense then, that this time really could be different with this latest effort to try and drag the Japanese government into the modern age. This is probably the first time that a prime minister has, has made digital strategy or creating a, a digital agency, not just one of a spate of reforms, but really the, the center of his agenda. So Japan's is a, is a system where signals from the top of the government do make a difference. Uh, the rest of the bureaucracy and, and the rest of society kind of adjusts uh, in response to those signals. When companies get serious about making their products and services available online, they call the process digital transformation. So can the private sector offer lessons to governments as they follow suit? One person who's worked in both public and private sectors is Suzanne Haywood, who started her career in the UK Treasury and then became a consultant at McKinsey. She also sits on the board of The Economist's parent company. Technology can both create new silos, but it can also be a massive opportunity. Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio and host of The Economist Asks, talked to Suzanne Haywood about digitising governments and about her new book, What Does Jeremy Think? A portrait and memoir of her late husband, Jeremy Haywood, a former head of the civil service who was at the centre of British political life for more than 30 years. I do think one of the things that the civil service, the public sector needs to do is to be, you know, careful about bureaucracy. You know, we're always, you know, because bureaucracy is is kind of costly, it slows things down. Uh, so we need to make sure that as much of our public sector as possible is focused on really delivering things that make a difference for citizens and not, not in kind of internal bureaucracy. And if we're talking about those challenges, it, it's some things feel different when government does them to when a business does them. And at the same time, they have a lot of the same challenges. So I wondered if you took something like digitalizing processes, improving customer services. That interests me a lot because we say we want government to be more innovative, but in practice, it's quite a high risk for them. It is. And I think this is the central problem, isn't it? And um, with being an innovator and being a disruptor, you, you do bring risk because some of the ways in which you innovate are not going to work. And again, we come back to that kind of choice that governments have, which is where do you draw that line? You know, do we want a public sector that never takes risks, that is very bureaucratic, very safe, very secure, but frankly, you know, from a citizen's point of view, doesn't do anything kind of innovative. And, you know, you'll still have a treasury that is working on uh, on old, old computers with little kind of green text. Or do we want a civil service, a public sector that innovates, that brings in ideas, that tries things? But if we do that, we have to accept that sometimes it's not going to work. And I think there is a balance, you know, like in all things, there is a balance between the two. We need kind of checks and balances to make sure that these things work. But I think we need to be very careful not to swing the pendulum so far that we prevent, you know, a degree of ideas flowing between the public and the private sector. And if you look around the world, where has inspired you? 
Well, there are definitely, I mean, some brilliant kind of civil services out there. But I have to say, and, you know, there, there have been many reports which are written looking and comparing different civil services. And generally, the UK comes out as one of the leading ones, one of the most innovative uh, civil services around the world. And I think actually in the specific case of kind of digital innovation, it really is uh, still pretty leading edge. But my view is that we've still got a huge way to go. For people to feel that they've really got a way to speak to government. And by the way, if, if we were able to do that, I think it would also be much easier to localise government, which I think is another really powerful thing, you know, because many people care passionately about national government, but they care even more about their local government, which is affecting what's happening to them and their family and their kind of local community. And again, you know, local government is, is amazingly opaque. So how do we open that up and, and make it much easier for people to engage? Dragging governments into the modern age is clearly a formidable task. But how has the pandemic affected government's efforts to go digital? Here's Vincenzo Aquaro of the UN again. We believe that the COVID-19 crisis is likely to significantly accelerate the shift to digital and fundamentally shake up the digital government landscape. Uh, as I light in 2020 government survey, the COVID-19 pandemic forced government and societies to turn toward digital technologies to respond to the crisis in the short term, recover from and resolve socioeconomic repercussions in the medium run, but also reinvent existing policies and tools in the long run. So uh, digital government presents vast opportunity for uh, uh, least developing countries, and several countries have a digital transformation program underway. One place that coped well during the pandemic is the country that sits proudly at the number one spot in the UN's e-government rankings, Denmark. Introducing vaccination schemes, introducing testing schemes, is very easy when everybody knows how to sign up and get their test answers digitally without having to introduce new systems. Adam Lebeck is Deputy Director of Denmark's Agency for Digitization at the Ministry of Finance. So most people already use the digital solutions in, uh, in, in Denmark, but we've seen take up even broader during the corona epidemic because everybody really needs to use the digital solutions to, to function well in government. Stepping back a bit, you know, looking at the longer term, not just the last year or so, but the whole reason that you've been doing this in your career, what are the benefits of doing things online for citizens, for companies and for the government itself? For most people, it's much easier to do it digitally. You could do it from your home, which is a huge benefit. You have more transparency. You can log on in Denmark, get all the information about yourself. You can log on to your health portal, for instance, see what hospital treatments uh, did I have, what medicine am I using. Uh, it's very easy to, to get uh, your, your tax records in, in place because it's pre-prepared for you uh, as a citizen. So uh, in, in that sense, it's, it's much easier for citizens. So why is Denmark so good at this? Is this something that's easier to do if you're a small country? The reason why uh, this works well is because there is also a huge trust in government. More than 80% trust the government to handle their data well. It's also very important for us to make sure that this trust is in place so you have very secure access to your data and we take care of it, uh, taking uh, very seriously uh, to, to make sure that you are uh, completely safe when you give data to the public sector. I hope that uh, the trust in government will stay high 
it's up to us to make sure that happens. We had to handle citizen data well. If we could do that, we can also design systems that interact even better with, with citizens using AI to create even better and more seamless services, making citizens able to interact with government in the, the manner and way they want to, to, to work with government. It sounds like you're talking about a sort of Alexa or Siri for government, where you can talk to the government directly. Is that the sort of thing you've got in mind? Definitely. And you have to look at both the way the citizen interacts with government, allowing the citizens to, to interact in the way that's convenient in the context that they're in, but also adapt the government system to work together to support this vision. So in the future, we could be saying, hey, Siri, pay my taxes and renew my passport too. As more aspects of everyday life move online, from work to education to entertainment, it's inevitable that governments will have to follow suit. So where is all this heading? I asked our guests for their predictions of what e-government would look like in a decade's time. First, Vincenzo Aquaro from the UN. The future of digital government should be and must be more agile, responsive and resilient. Predictive governance will be critical for emergency response in both man-made and natural disaster as well as mitigation measures. Sarah Maslin. I'm actually very optimistic about this. I think it's taking some time to, to get started, but I think that there are a lot of factors here in Brazil that set it on a path of improvement. Suzanne Haywood. I hope it's going to be much easier for citizens to contact government and have dialogues with government. I mean, so we use, you know, digitization to make this a, a two-way dialogue with government so that they people can see normal citizens just contacting government and putting their ideas in. I think that would be fantastic. Noah Snyder. A bit of the same and a bit of the new. As always, I think the change in Japan will be gradual and, and imperceptible as it happens, but will move forward. And finally, Adam Lebeck in Denmark. In 10 years uh, time, I think digital government will work much better seen from a citizen's point of view. We will need to focus on how to create better and more seamless services that work the way people want them to work in the context they're in. Thank you to Adam Lebeck, Noah Snyder, Suzanne Haywood, Sarah Maslin and Vincenzo Aquaro. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. This episode was produced by Simon Jarvis and edited by Sandra Schmueli. And if you're not already an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to subscribe. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.